It's a joy to be able to be with you this morning and to be able to bring you the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And so to that end, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning's message comes to us from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 11. So we'll start reading at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and then we'll read to verse 18. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. <clears throat> May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we uh, give you thanks that you gather us here in your presence and that we have the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand in the heavenly holy of holies, and the Holy Spirit who carries our prayers immediately into your presence, and that he uh, groans with uh, words that are unintelligible to us, but nevertheless that carry our very concerns, thoughts, fears, and prayers into your presence. And we have the perfect mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, made his sacrifice, that once for all, all-sufficient sacrifice on our behalf, so that we have the privilege of entering into your presence. We pray, O Lord, that we would be thankful for these blessings, that we would uh, rest in Christ, and that you would speak words unto us, words of life, words that convict us of our sin, words that give unto us hope, and that you would do all of these things to the praise and glory of your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the Old Testament tabernacle, God instructed Moses to uh, construct it, to build it. And when he finally finished it, there you had inside the inner temple. And inside the inner temple, you had the Holy of Holies. And of course, inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. This was the very throne of God. But even within the Ark of the Covenant, inside, you had the two tablets of the law. We know this, of course, because this is what the scriptures tell us. And so in the very heart of the tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God in the midst of his people was a copy of his law that which gave testimony to his character and the nature of his will. Now, these instructions regarding the placement of the law ultimately point forward, believe it or not, to us. Because if you remember what the Apostle Paul says about the church, about you and me, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know... 
that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you. So there's a sense in which we can say that that Old Testament tabernacle, as odd as it may seem to us, is actually a shadowy picture of the church, and not just of the church, but each and every one of us, and that God takes up his residence in our hearts, and not only does he dwell within our hearts, but just like that Old Testament tabernacle had the Ark of the Covenant at its center with the law inside of it, so too God inscribes his law upon our hearts, which is the very throne of his dwelling place within us. This is the very truth that the author of Hebrews is unpacking. Except there's a big difference, obviously, between what's going on in the Old Testament versus what's going on in the New. What happens in the tabernacle, what happens within each and every one of us by virtue of the Spirit's indwelling power and presence. Because the way that God accomplishes this in the New Testament versus what we see in the Old is significant. We can say that it is dramatically different from the vantage point that in the Old Testament tabernacle, you have these physical objects. You have the physical tablets of the law of God. You have the Ark of the Covenant. But in the New Testament, you do not have physical buildings and such, whether it's the temple or the tabernacle, but rather you have us that the Apostle Peter calls living stones. And it's within each one of us as living stones that God inscribes his law upon our hearts, not only by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, but it's something that God does because of the once for all sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who offered himself up on our behalf and who now sits at the right hand of the Father in royal session inside the heavenly temple, inside the Holy of Holies. This is ultimately the theme that the author of Hebrews shows us in yet another way that Christ's sacrifice and his priestly ministry is far superior to anything that came before in the Old Testament and to show us that it's superior to all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain in the words of Isaac Watts. And so what we want to do is we want to see what the author of Hebrews has to say about this, about the superior nature of Christ's sacrifice and what that sacrifice actually accomplishes in terms of inscribing the law of God upon our hearts. And so we want to give thought first to what the author says about Christ, our great high priest, sitting at the Father's right hand. Secondly, how by sitting at the Father's right hand and completing his sacrifice, he perfects the church, he perfects his people, he cleanses his bride. And then thirdly and finally, we want to give thought to what uh, the author has to say about God writing his law upon our hearts. So sitting at God's right hand, secondly, perfecting his people, and third and finally, writing his law upon our hearts. So let's give first uh, thought here to what the author has to say about the fact that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. 
But we want to do so, as is often is the case, especially here in the book of Hebrews, by casting a rearward glance at the Old Testament and giving thought once again uh, to those procedures from the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, you know, we know that the high priest would have to make very diligent and specific preparations to ensure that God would accept the sacrifices that were offered on that day. The high priest had to wear pure and holy garments. He had to wear his pure linen coat. He had to wear pure and clean linen undergarments. He had to tie this linen sash around his waist, as well as place upon his head a linen turban. He had to take special care to bathe in preparation for entering into the Holy of Holies. And then he had to sacrifice several animals as part of the process. He had to make a a, a sacrifice of a bull for a sin offering. And what a sin offering was for, according to the book of Leviticus, is it was a sin offering that was offered for any unintentional sins. You know, so often it's the case that people want to say that, well, I shouldn't be held guilty. I shouldn't be held responsible if I sin unintentionally. I mean, I didn't do it on purpose, right? And yet, this is how extensive the law is. This is how demanding the law is. This is the degree of perfection that the law requires in order to enter into the presence of God is that the high priest had to offer a sacrifice even for unintentional sins. And then in addition to this, he also had to offer a ram for a burnt offering. And this was simply a general offering for the atonement of sin. In other words, you could say that one offering was for the unintentional sins. uh, The other offering was for intentional sins. So all of these sacrifices uh, cover the gamut of anything that the high priest might do intentionally or unintentionally, ceremonially to clean him of all sin. These were all of the procedures that were necessary to convey the idea that the high priest was supposed to be sinless. Not only was he supposed to be sinless, but this is another way of saying that he was a perfect specimen of a human being. He was clothed in pure garments, symbolic of his moral perfection and his righteousness. He offered sacrifices to cover over his intentional and unintentional sins. Think of the type and the degree of meditation and carefulness that was required in order to ensure the integrity of the sacrifices of that day. You know, think of it. How often, for example, uh, would you maybe bow in prayer and as you're praying you find your mind wandering. You know, so often it's the case that to keep my mind from wandering in prayer, I'll pray out loud just so that I don't wander. And I don't know about you, but sometimes some of the most distracted times that I have in worship is when I'm singing. I don't know how it's physiologically and neurologically possible 
for me to be reading and singing the words on the page and yet for my mind to be somewhere else. I'm multitasking, perhaps unintentionally so. And so I'm regularly having to do this as when I look at the, the, the words on the page, I'm trying to tell myself, focus on the words, concentrate on the words, don't let your mind be distracted. Well, this is the nature of dedication that the high priest had to have because if he went into the Holy of Holies with intentional or unintentional sins or if his, his mind was to wander in the midst of that day of days, it could spell doom for the sacrifice. It could spell doom for the nation of Israel for the, that, that next year. It could mean possibly that God's presence would no longer be in the midst of his people. But even then, the high priest made all of these moral and physical preparations. His time and his actions within the Holy of Holies was supposed to be very, very deliberate. There was not supposed to be any dawdling. You know, it's often the case that uh, when my wife and I are trying to get the children out the door, that's when the dawdling goes way up. You know, it's like, please go get in the car now. What are you doing over here? Oh, I'm cleaning my room. Okay, that's great, but that's now not the time. You got to get in the car. You got to go. Well, there was no room for distraction. And in particular, we read at several places in the book of Deuteronomy that the law is clear here. Deuteronomy 10.8, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord and to minister to him and to bless his name. You know, think about the royal attendance of a king or of a queen. Think as you see, for example, uh, the soldiers at Buckingham Palace. They don't sit They're always standing at attention. No matter the circumstances, whether it's rain, whether it's shine, they're always standing. Same thing, you can often see this when you see either pictures of Queen Elizabeth or perhaps even, uh, you know, video clips of her as she's walking through. You'll see royal attendants just simply standing there. And they're serving by standing. Deuteronomy 18, 6 and 7, that the high priest may not come when he desires to the place of the Lord, but he ministers in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord. The law is clear. The high priest and the rest of the priests, they were to stand in all of the Old Testament descriptions of the tabernacle furnishings and later the temple furnishings, one piece of furniture that you do not see is you do not see a chair. There is nowhere to sit but one place. One place. And that's the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. And he sits enthroned between the cherubim. Everybody else, every single other priest, especially the high priest, was to minister in the presence of the Lord by standing. And this is the very point that the author makes here in chapter 10, verse 11. And every 
priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. When you were serving in the presence of the Lord, there was no rest. There was no rest because I think what might happen is, again, something that is common to us is that if the high priest were to sit, his mind might wander because he begins to sit in a position of repose, in a position of rest. And you wouldn't want your mind to wander as you're serving the Lord in the temple. You know, what if the priest, for example, didn't precisely follow the instructions? What happened to Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons? They brought unauthorized fire and God struck them dead. Moreover, the fact that, that, that the author says that they were offering repeatedly the same sacrifices means that there was no final forgiveness of sins because the priests continually had to offer the same sacrifices over and over and over again. And so this is why the author contrasts those Old Testament priests, the Old Testament practices, and those of the tabernacle with the finality of the priestly work of Christ. He says in verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice that important contrast that the author contrasts the priests of the Old Testament who stood in the presence of God in the tabernacle as they ministered with Jesus Christ, our great high priest who went in and he sat down. This in and of itself is an implicit admission of the deity of Christ, our high priest. Because as I said, in the tabernacle, there's only one place to sit. And that's between the cherubim. In between those cherubim atop the ark, the very throne of God. This is why Christ's priestly intercession is far superior to that of the Old Testament priests. Except Jesus, of course, does not offer sacrifices of animals that had to be offered repeatedly, as the author says, but rather he instead offered himself his own spotless life without blemish. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, I mean, there's perhaps a, a sense in which we think of all of the preparations that the high priest had to do. You know, bathing himself, putting on absolutely pure garments. And when you read some of the literature that was available outside of the scriptures, especially for the Herodian temple, the temple that was standing during the days of Christ, they took all kinds of other, uh, you know, practices 
uh, to ensure the integrity of the high priest's actions. Days before, they would gather the high priest and they would sit him in a chair and they would have priests circling him, reciting scripture to him so that his mind would be continually upon the things of the Lord. They would take the high priest and they made sure that his wife was healthy, but just in case... There was any question, they had a backup wife waiting for him to say that if your wife dies, we'll have a backup wife ready for you so that you can marry her so that the integrity of the sacrifice is not in any way jeopardized. Moreover, if the high priest, as he was sitting there in the chair, would begin to grow drowsy, they would not want him to fall asleep and potentially to derail the integrity of the sacrifices uh, by thinking of things that he shouldn't, let alone perhaps even sinful things. And so they would snap their fingers in his face or they would have him walk across cold stones uh, to keep him awake. As extensive as all of those processes were, as as many steps as the high priest had to take to ensure that he was prepared to enter into the Holy of Holies, those things are but a scant shadow of the absolute righteousness, holiness, and moral perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Peter says that he was a lamb without blemish or spot, Think of what that means. Meditate upon that for a minute. He committed no sin. He completely, wholeheartedly, unbegrudgingly fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. Not a single command was left undone in any way, shape, or form. He was not guilty of any unintentional sin. You know, just the other day, I I don't know what was making me think of this, but I was wishing that I could go back in time and unsay a couple of comments that I made to a bunch, several different people that I thought at the time, I didn't think of it, but then afterwards I realized it was an insensitive comment. It was an unintentional, uh, you know, foolish thing that I said that inflicted pain upon somebody. And I wish I could go back and take it back. Not so with Christ. No unintentional sins whatsoever. When he encountered the woman at the well... He did not look upon her with lust in his eyes, but rather he looked upon her as a sinner, someone who needed salvation. When he rebuked the Pharisees, his anger was measured, it was holy, and it was warranted. It never skidded off the road into sin. When he was tired and hungry, he never grew impatient. When he performed miracles and the crowd stood in awe, he never once thought of holding the crowd's, uh, you know, uh, praise to himself, but rather he continually pointed to say he was only doing the works that his father gave him to do. And when he prayed for countless hours upon end, his mind never, ever wandered. This is why when he entered the heavenly holy of holies, unlike the Old Testament priests, he sat down. 
at the right hand of the Father. And now he reigns and rules in the midst of his enemies. If you want to see this, how the Old Testament uh, captures this in terms of the righteousness of the man of God, of Jesus Christ, you can see this as the righteous man of Psalm 1 is the same righteous man who ascends the throne in Psalm 2. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the same righteous man, the psalmist says in Psalm 2, as for me I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has entered into the heavenly holy of holies because of his moral perfection, righteousness, and holiness. And he has sat down at the right hand of God, unlike the other priests who would stand and repeatedly offer their sacrifices day after day, sacrifices that did not remove sin. Well, to what end? To what end does Jesus enter into the heavenly holy of holies and sit at the Father's right hand? Well, this brings us to the second point, which is the perfection of his people, and that the Old Testament sacrifices were placeholders. They were signs that pointed forward to the greater sacrifice of Jesus. And this is why the author reminds us here again in verse 11, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that never take away sins. But what does Christ, the spotless lamb, accomplish for those who trust in him? Verse 14, by a single sacrifice, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think of the high priest's preparations, his bathing, his garments, the sacrifices for intentional and unintentional sins. This is the perfection that points forward to Christ's righteousness and holiness, but it also points forward to the same perfection and righteousness that Christ imparts to you and to me by faith. For every intentional sin that we commit... Christ is our righteousness. For every unintentional sin that we commit, Christ is our righteousness. In Paul's words, in a beautiful passage from Ephesians chapter 5, where he looks at the marriage relationship between husband and wife, he says that it is this marriage relationship that points us to the relationship between Christ and his church. And when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The same language that Peter uses to describe Christ is the same language that Paul uses to describe the bride of Christ. He uses to describe you and me for all of our sin, intentional or unintentional, because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. He cleanses us and he gives unto us a holiness and a purity that far outstrips the ceremonial purity of the high priest in the Old Testament. 
God gives to us the imputed satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness so that when he looks upon us, when God looks upon us, all he sees is Christ's perfection. But think of the heights. Think of the heights from which Christ condescended to save us. I think we all too often think that salvation is, uh, is our attempt to scale the heavens. But the overwhelming picture that the scriptures present is that it's not that we climb up to heaven, but rather Christ brings heaven down to us. John Calvin says, He, Christ, stretches out the hand to those who are going astray and stoops so low as to guide nursing infants. The one who now sits at the right hand of the Father has come to save you from every single sin that you have committed, intentional or unintentional, and has made you perfect through justification, the the, the question that we just read about this morning moments ago, and yet he is making you still perfect yet as he sanctifies you, as he continues to purify you through your sanctification. In other words, Christ, through the Spirit, is making you what you have been declared through your justification. You have been declared righteous and holy in Christ, and now he is making you righteous and holy in Christ. By what means? This brings us to our third and final point, writing his law And at the author, once again, remember, he has quoted Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 31, back in chapter 8. Well, he revisits it, and he says in verses 16 and 17, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I think once again, we should stop, pause, and meditate upon the author's point here against the backdrop of the Old Testament. For all of the priest's careful preparations, bathing, garments, sacrifices, these actions never removed any sins. You know, sometimes I think of it and I, I, I can't say that I'm perfect. There are days when I don't, and I'm always trying to teach my kids to make sure and help out. But, you know, you think of it after a huge meal, you know, so that, you know, your wife or whoever has gone through the trouble of creating a huge meal. And uh, it's been something that has been enjoyable, and it's been, uh, you know, very uh, uh, filling, and, and it, it's just, it, you know, it's just fantastic. And so then you say, okay, let's go, let's go help clean up. You know, because sometimes maybe this has happened where you go and you, you eat the meal. There's a lot of prep work that's gone into it. And then you have to do the, all the cleanup. And about the time that the cleanup is done, say like a Thanksgiving meal, you know, so tons of plates, tons of dishes, tons of stuff all over the place. You finish cleaning up. Then somebody comes around a couple hours later, say, hey, what's for dinner? <laughs> You're like, what's for dinner? We just finished. What are you talking about? You know, in other words, for all of that work, for all of the prep, for all of the cooking, for all of the cleanup, people are still going to be hungry in a few hours, and then there's more, and then there's more. 
Well, what happens if you could have and prepare a meal that you would just prepare once that would satisfy your hunger for the rest of your life so that you would never need food again? That's the nature of Christ's sacrifice. For all of the repetition, there's no need for Christ to repeat anything because of the perfection of it. And so what Christ does, and this is the big difference, is is that with the Old Testament, all of these sacrifices were repeated and repeated and repeated because they never made a change to the people that were conducting them. But through the sacrifice of Christ, what does God do through Christ's priestly intercession? Is that he writes his law upon the walls of our heart. He places his law at the very heart of his dwelling place, his temple, his home. He gives us his holiness and his law. You know, think, for example, of the lepers that Christ encountered in his ministry What could the law do with those lepers? Nothing. All the law could do with the lepers is say they were unclean. They should be cast outside the camp. But what did Christ do with the lepers? He did the unthinkable. He touched them. And rather than contracting defilement and unholiness, Christ himself imparted holiness. He imparted healing. He imparted life. Such is the nature of our redemption. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices essentially said, you're unworthy, you're sinful, but it is the sacrifice of Christ and through his work that he writes his law upon our hearts so that he transforms us and he saves us. He imparts unto us healing, wholeness, and holiness. So we can say in this respect that Christ's work of obedience and sacrifice gives unto us his righteousness and his holiness, and he begins the process of conforming us to his image by writing his law upon our hearts. When God created us, he wrote his law upon the walls of our hearts, but Adam's sin has obscured that law and the knowledge of it. But when Christ saves us and indwells us, the Holy Spirit removes the stains of sin and he rewrites it upon the walls of our hearts. In the 1980s and in the 90s, there was a Japanese television company that sponsored a multi-year restoration of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel to restore its faded images and pictures. You can imagine that since the painting had been completed in 1541, that over hundreds of years, just the air and perhaps the pollutants in the air had faded the painting. You know, sometimes when I go and I read a book that I've read, I, I, you know, there's a particular color highlighter that I don't like using, and it's yellow, and it's because give that, time, give that, uh, give that book enough time, say three, four years, and the yellow highlighter fades. And you can barely see what you marked. And so I have to go back and I'll pick up old books and I will re-highlight passages because I want to be able to see what I marked. The Sistine Chapel faded. Those yellow highlighter marks fade. And because of sin, 
our knowledge of God's law has been obscured, but what God in Christ through the Spirit does is he removes the stains of sin and he rewrites clearly upon the walls of our hearts the knowledge of his law. And what is it that he writes upon the walls of our hearts? While he rewrites his law, we can summarize it as Jesus has summarized it in that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because God has loved us first, he enables us to love him and others by writing his law upon our hearts and giving us the Holy Spirit to convict us that when we stray from it, the Holy Spirit reigns us in and keeps us on the path of righteousness. No animal sacrifice could ever inscribe the law upon our hearts. No desire to love him or to obey him could ever come from an animal. It could only come from the sovereign work of Christ to the Spirit. It was John Bradford, a 16th century English reformer, who once observed a group of prisoners being led to their execution. And what did he say as he watched them go by? There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. Bradford knew that his ability to love God, to seek to obey his law, and to glorify Christ was entirely a gift of God's grace. It wasn't something that he himself could muster. In fact, so powerful was Bradford's love for God that when he was imprisoned by Queen Mary I in the Tower of London for his belief in the gospel, he was willing to love God unto death. And he was burned on the stake at July 1st, 1555. And as he was led to the stake and tied to it, there was another fellow martyr beside him as they were getting ready to light the pyre. And he told the young man, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. That's the depth of his love for God, that he was willing to give up his life. Such a love and devotion comes only through Christ and the Spirit only through Christ's priestly work. It never comes through animal sacrifice. And this is why the author of Hebrews was saying, don't go back. Think of Christ's righteousness and his sinless perfection, the great heights from which he has come to save you, and rejoice that you now possess Christ's indwelling spirit because of the gift of faith Rejoice that he has written the law of God upon your hearts and that you are his temple, you are his dwelling place. Rejoice that you can love God and that we can love one another because this has all come through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who has entered into the heavenly holy of holies and who has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for the all-sufficient work of Christ. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could in any way bring about our salvation. For they all pointed to the all-sufficient, perfect sacrifice of Christ. Indeed, we rejoice, O Lord, in the knowledge that Christ has entered into the heavenly holy of holies and has sat down at your right hand. Not only is he making his enemies his footstool, but he is sanctifying us. He is writing and rewriting and 
instilling it into us not only a law, your law, but also a love for you and for one another. Oh, Father, make us holy. Make us what we have been declared in Christ. Keep us from wandering. Help us, O Lord, when we draw nigh unto you through the means of grace that our minds would not wander, whether in prayer, whether in song, whether in listening to your word or in reading your word. O Father, we pray that not just simply keep our minds from wandering, but keep us from sinning. Keep us off the path of wickedness and hold us fast in Christ. Bring glory to your name that we would not only profess our faith in you with our mouths, but we would also do so with our lives. With every word, thought, and deed, we pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.